contact, making, contact. Making, making, making contact. I'm Monica Lopez, this week on Making Contact. And so if you think about the 9-11 case as the one and only way in which the, all the, you know, 2,976 people who were direct casualties of the 9-11 attacks, if this case were to be the means of providing them justice, there has been no justice for them because the government tortured people, including those people it wants to prosecute for the 9-11 attacks. In today's program, we turn our attention to the history of torture in the U.S. since the 9-11 attacks. That history includes how the government and the public came to define and regard the use of torture in the War on Terror. Dr. Lisa Hajar is a professor of sociology at the University of California, Santa Barbara. Her research focuses primarily on the U.S. war on terror, particularly around the issues of torture, targeted killing, and Guantanamo. Her forthcoming book is titled The War in Court, The Inside Story of the Fight Against Torture in the War on Terror. To date, she's traveled to Guantanamo 14 times in her research on military commissions. Dr. Hajar spoke with me about the rise and fall of the post-9-11 torture program. One of the very first decisions in the very um, immediate aftermath of the terrorist attacks of September 11th, uh, President George W. Bush decided to make the CIA the tip of the spear, you know, for waging this war on terror and authorized the CIA to engage in operations that came to be known as rendition, detention, and interrogation. So the CIA was presumably hunting for high-level terror suspects whom they would keep for themselves for their own interrogation purposes, which was separate from military um, interrogation and detention operations, first in Afghanistan and then on January 11, 2002, when Guantanamo became the primary facility for long-term interrogation and detention. I mean, of course, the CIA has a very long, uh, robust history of torture as well as of lying and deceptiveness. And so that was one of the reasons why the CIA was so appealing as the kind of front agency, also because everything they do is completely classified. When the CIA captured its own first so-called high-value detainee, um, which the government uses the acronym HVD, who is a man whose nom de guerre is Abu Zubaydah. He was captured in Pakistan in March of 2002 and, you know, sort of spirited off to one of a succession of black sites or secret prisons. And, you know, the people who were authorized by the CIA to run their interrogation operations actually believed that the only way to get these high-value detainees, starting with Abu Zubaydah, to talk was to completely um, attack their psyches, to produce in them a condition that was called, you know, debility, disorientation, and dread. And so these, you know, contractors and other agents who were involved in the black site operations at the very start, you know, they sort of believed their own propaganda that we were unable to use regular interrogation tactics against them. According to Professor Hajar, this desire to use coercion and violence 
was coupled with an anxiety that what people were going to be doing to detainees at black sites could put them in hot water. And so by the summer of 2002, you know, these radical right wing lawyers who were in the inner circle around Vice President uh, Dick Cheney, including John Yu, who was a deputy assistant attorney general in the Office of Legal Counsel. John Yu uh, wrote a memo which basically reinterpreted the laws pertaining to interrogation and detention in order to allow CIA agents to engage in torture and not fear future consequences. So it was essentially the way in which the government was seeking to quote unquote legalize torture. And that um, legal authorization was really foundational to the development of the torture program. It was written specifically for the CIA, which is a civilian agency and therefore not subject to the laws of war, particularly the Geneva Conventions. Um, But it was passed by the White House to the Pentagon and civilians in the highest echelons of the Pentagon then basically interpreted that green light for torture to also apply to military interrogations at Guantanamo and elsewhere. Early on, we're talking about like November and December of 2001, the the word getting out to officers and soldiers on the ground in Afghanistan was these people are not, you know, prisoners of war. The laws of war don't apply. Take the gloves off, you know, get the information you can. So many soldiers were engaging in brutality um, without any kind of legal cover. But it was really sort of once the CIA gets this uh, governmental justification or, or legal cover, or what people have referred to as the golden shield, that le- the legal memos shielding them from consequences for what they were doing. Um, it then spreads to the military and becomes part of military policy as well um, in the latter part of 2002 and then early into 2003. You know, right after President Bush issued his military order um, in November of 2001, decreeing that our enemies were unlawful enemy combatants and that they could be held incommunicado and subjected to trial by military commissions. One of the first people, you know, for whom this was like like an alarming development was Michael Ratner, who was the executive director of the Center for Constitutional Rights. And he and his colleagues, you know, joined together with um, two death penalty lawyers, Joe Margulis uh, and uh, Clive Stafford Smith. They challenged the government's right to simply capture people and hold them without any access to lawyers, without any assessment of who they actually were or whether or not they were legitimately detained. And so that was the very first court case. It was named Rasul v. Bush. And so um, what happened was the case lost in a lower court, lost on appeal, but then to the shock and surprise of the Bush administration, the CCR lawyers and their allies beat the Bush administration when the Supreme Court ruled in Rasul v. Bush that the government cannot hold people indefinitely incommunicado. In this clip from Law and Disorder Radio, the late human rights attorney Michael Ratner describes what it was like to work on these and other Guantanamo cases. Sometimes I and my colleagues feel like Sisyphus, 
Not just once, twice, we pushed the rock up the hill and won rights for Guantanamo detainees in the Supreme Court. And twice, the rock was rolled back down by Congress over those rights. Five days ago, we were in the Supreme Court for the third time. It was difficult, more difficult than before, because the justices have changed. Four are antediluvians, lost forever to humanity. But before I get us all depressed, we've had our victories. We've gotten lawyers to Guantanamo, stopped the most overt torture, and freed half of the Guantanamo detainees, over 300. That first case, Rasul v. Bush, was one critical event in 2004 that moved the post-9-11 torture program closer to its end. But there were two other events. The one that perhaps is most well-known to the more general public, at least of a certain age, was the Abu Ghraib scandal. After the United States invaded Iraq uh, in, in March of 2003, you know, soldiers who were detaining people in Iraq had also been, you know, ordered to take the gloves off and, and, you know, get intelligence about whoever was attacking U.S. and allied forces. And so there was also horrific violence um, in U.S.-controlled prisons in Iraq, including the Abu Ghraib prison. And so some of these soldiers who were working as military police took photos of themselves abusing detainees in absolutely horrifying ways. Some soldiers exchanged these photos among themselves. You know, ultimately, CBS ended up publishing the Abu Ghraib photos on April 28, 2004. Here's a bit of that report. Americans did this to an Iraqi prisoner. According to the U.S. Army, the man was told to stand on a box with his head covered, with wires attached to his hands. He was told that if he fell off the box, he would be electrocuted. It was this picture and dozens of others that prompted an investigation by the U.S. Army. Those Abu Ghraib photos created an absolute global scandal. So that was the first, that was a pivotal event, the beginning of the end of torture. It was finally Congress roused itself from its sleepy slumber to start asking questions about what was actually going on in detention facilities, you know, because everything was so classified and secret. This demand for, by Congress for more information led to the Bush administration releasing some legal memos and others being leaked to the media, including the infamous August 1, 2002 memo that John Yoo had written uh, for the CIA. So while the Abu Ghraib photos were a global shocker because of the, you know, a picture says a thousand words. For lawyers, the legal memos and the policy directives that became public as a result of the pressure caused by the Abu Ghraib scandal really angered and in some ways galvanized lawyers. And then several weeks later, the Supreme Court issued its ruling in Rasul v. Bush basically opening Guantanamo to lawyers. And so it was that confluence of events that inspired 
inspired hundreds of lawyers, like up to 600 lawyers and over 100 law firms over time to sign up and volunteer to be habeas counsel for people detained at Guantanamo. What we could say is if, if the Abu Ghraib scandal and Rasul v. Bush were the beginning of the end, the end of an active torture program occurs as a result of another set of events. You know, when the Bush administration decides to start prosecuting some Guantanamo detainees in these newly um, created military commission uh, at Guantanamo, one of the first people who was charged was a guy named Salim Hamdan. You know, he was not some terrorist mastermind. He'd been basically, a, you know, a driver for Osama bin Laden, but he was one of the first people to be prosecuted. And and one thing that really shocked the hell out of the Bush administration and the Pentagon was the fact that military lawyers, JAGs, Judge Advocate Generals, the first ones who were assigned to defend people in the military commissions, basically put their legal ethics and their professional duties as lawyers above the orders to just, you know, plea bargain their clients. And so, you know, the first five defense lawyers all started fighting the Pentagon over, you know, not just the way in which their um, the people they were assigned to represent had been treated, but also the kind of ridiculous legal parameters for the military commission. One of those lawyers was Lieutenant Commander Charles Swift. Hajar says he teamed up with a Georgetown law professor and attorneys from the law firm of Perkins Coie to sue Secretary of Defense Donald Rumsfeld over the unconstitutionality of the military commissions. And so that case was called Hamdan v. Rumsfeld. And again, Hamdan v. Rumsfeld loses in the lower court, loses on appeal. And then in June of 2006, in another, and what I would consider the most significant defeat for the Bush administration, and really what, what forces an end to the active torture program was the Supreme Court's decision that not only were the military commissions that George Bush had created by presidential fiat with his you know, November 2001 military order, was that unconstitutional and therefore they wiped out the military commissions, but the more significant finding the Bush administration had hoped that they could disregard the laws of war, the Geneva Conventions, because they were fighting non-state groups and therefore they didn't have to abide by the laws of war. Well, the Supreme Court in Hamdan v. Rumsfeld basically said common Article 3 of the 1949 Geneva Conventions, which is also regarded as the humanitarian baseline, applies to all people in U.S. custody overseas. And then the Supreme Court also reminded the government that violations of the Geneva Conventions are war crimes. For all intents and purposes, torture itself was kind of dry docked as a result of and after the Hamdan decision. And then when Barack Obama was elected president, um, one of his first acts in office was to definitively take the CIA out of the interrogation and detention business and categorically, you know, bring an end to the legality or the use of torture. Then President Barack Obama. In the immediate aftermath of 9-11, uh, we did some things that were wrong. We did a whole lot of things that were right, but we tortured some folks. We did some things that were contrary to our values. President Obama gave this famous speech that many remember where he says, uh, we tortured some folks. 
Daniel J. Jones, former U.S. Senate investigator of the CIA's use of torture after 9-11, in this clip from the CBC. His work resulted in the torture report. But what many people don't remember is the next few lines of that speech, which he said, it's important not to get too sanctimonious about what those people did because they're real patriots. And I find that to be so unsettling because of all the CIA officers who came to me when I was researching and writing the report, who helped by saying, you have to look at this email, you have to look at this memo. The people in the cables, the CIA cables, objecting to the program, asking to be transferred, wanting nothing to do with it, calling the program a train wreck. And here was Obama saying that the people who conducted the torture were real patriots, and I think they're anything but. You're listening to Making Contact and what Dr. Lisa Hajar calls the anti-torture history of the post-9-11 era. Her forthcoming book on UC Press is called The War in Court, the inside story of the fight against torture in the war on terror. To find out more about the people and topics discussed in this show, go to our website at radioproject.org. That's radioproject.org. While Obama canceled the torture program, he defied his own pre-presidential statements, including his campaign promises to, you know, sort of seek justice to clean house. Part of cleaning house when you're dealing with a gross crime under international and federal law like torture is to prosecute people, to prosecute the people who are responsible for either perpetrating or abetting or authorizing torture. Torture is in the same category with war crimes, crimes against humanity, and genocide. They are the gross crimes under international law. Well, Obama basically didn't want to alienate people who were already critical of him. He basically rationalized his own refusal to clean house with this facile mantra that it was time for the nation to look forward, not backward. And he actually used those legal memos that had been written by lawyers in the Bush administration as the rationale for not prosecuting people for torture on the grounds that they had acted in good faith. So there's a number of problems about that that have enduring effects. Like because those torture memos, while they're not still operative, their power in shaping U.S. policy over not only the you know the Bush administration but everything that's come there since has completely clouded the ability of Americans or the U.S. legal system to even understand what torture is and the criminal consequences that should result from torture. So there's been no like the law has been wrecked by this set of circumstances. And the courts, while they have, you know, on occasion, particularly the Supreme Court in its earlier incarnations of justices, did do some things that, you know, forced the government to shift uh, its hand. There's never been a reckoning with the damage that the torture policy has done to the law and legal institutions, or even to advancing a clear narrative that sort of addresses 
what was wrong and what was illegal about these past policies. And so in that regard, we are still living in the age of torture because the law has been affected by those things. There has not yet been a a, a reckoning with our past. You know, the 20th anniversary of the 9-11 attacks themselves, that court case in the Guantanamo military commissions, which started under Bush, fell apart immediately, and then restarted under Obama, is continuing on. And it's not even at the trial phase, it's at the pre-trial phase, because the U.S. government decided to torture people. And now it wants to prosecute people it tortured. And those two facts are irreconcilable. And so if you think about the 9-11 case as the one and only way in which the, all the you know 2,976 people who were direct casualties of the 9-11 attacks, if this case were to be the means of providing them justice, there has been no justice for them because the government tortured people, including those people it wants to prosecute for the 9-11 attacks. Dr. Hajar says another consequence of the torture program is the mark that it's left on party politics and on public support for the use of torture during interrogations. There was no pro-torture constituency in the United States prior to 9-11. Certainly, the United States has its own terrible history of torture, including the kind of brutalities against slaves, people of color, Native Americans, etc. But, you know, as government policy, it wasn't government policy you know, at least not from the 20th century, you know, mid 20th century onward. And therefore, you know, people recognize that torture was a bad and horrible thing. Immediately after 9-11, you know, what, what the Bush administration was doing secretly in the shadows, plotting and planning and laying ground for coercive interrogations, that was one thing. But what was going on in the public domain was all kinds of suddenly pro-torture arguments, including people who back then, I believe he was, a, you know, Tucker Carlson was, I don't remember which media outlet he was, but, you know, all kinds of people rationalizing the possibility that we might need to torture our enemies in order to get life-saving information from them. This kind of pro-torture rhetoric in the immediate aftermath of 9-11 starts, you know, greasing the wheels for growing public support for torture. And one of the huge lubricants for that was the television show 24, which was all, you know, based on this idea that a vigilante played by Kiefer Sutherland could torture bad guys in every episode and always get, you know, life-saving information. She died in agony, which is exactly what I'm going to make you do. Unless you tell me what I want to know. Start talking to me! So that completely altered the way sort of sectors of the general public understood torture. But what really is telling is after the Abu Ghraib photos, you see this huge spike, especially among the right, in support for torture. People who were reveling and glorying in you know, the images of Arab uh, men you know, naked and abused 
But so that starts producing a kind of, you know, deeper and more overtly committed racist, you know, attraction to torture. And you know, then when it's learned that one of the CIA techniques that was used was waterboarding, you know, people then became fascinated by waterboarding. And there were all kinds of journalists who would get themselves waterboarded, including Christopher Hitchens from Vanity Fair, to see whether waterboarding really was as bad as, you know, anti-torture people said it was. And so you start getting this buildup of like, the embrace of of government directed violence and abuse against people who are, you know, sort of racially and religiously othered in, in the American context. The thing that really turns, you know, escalates public support for torture was Obama's January 2009 cancellation of the torture program. It's only after Obama cancels the torture program that public support for torture, at least U.S. torture, rises above the 50% mark. And, you know, it's sort of never gone away. And so because you know, for partisan reasons, uh, and this doesn't let Democrats off the hook or mainstream Democrats, but for partisan reasons, you know, A, that the torture had been authorized by a Republican administration, that a Democratic president had canceled it, the Republican Party kind of latches on to torture as, you know, and it becomes, you know, a a defining, the support for torture becomes a defining aspect of Republican Party politics. And we see that in the 2016 election when every single Republican candidate for president um, was, you know, one of their platforms was resurrection or restoration of so-called enhanced interrogation techniques, you know, sort of thinking that Obama had made a mistake in taking this useful and effective technique out of the playbook of U.S. interrogators. And so every single one of them, you know, advocated that, of course, Trump was the most um direct in in saying that he specifically wanted to bring back the waterboard. But, you know, Hillary Clinton was no, uh, you know, enemy of torture either. She uh, said that if if she were president and an occasion arose in which torture would be necessary, she would authorize it, then she would take the consequences. A sociology professor, Hajar has been researching the use of torture since the 1990s. Her upcoming book, however, examines the period after the 9-11 attacks. So the way I would describe my book is it's the anti-torture history of the war on terror. So I trace the fight against torture and the victories, the defeats, the challenges, the ways in which um, torture and the fight against it have completely altered the legal terrain, not only in the United States, but one could argue on a global scale. I would just mention that, you know, because I think this is a very important and fascinating story, although I'm an academic, I wrote this book, you know, for general readers. So it's being published as a trade book. You know, there's no footnotes. It's just the winding story of how, you know, sort of the rise and fall of torture, but the fall of torture is very much the people who deserve, you know, a lot of the credit for that are the 
dozens and hundreds of lawyers who in one way or another, lawyers, law professors, legal intellectuals, and human rights activists who really, you know, put their shoulder to the grindstone, big ways and small ways to push back against the government policies that, you know, enabled the complete dehumanization of human beings, violent interrogation techniques, forced disappearance for years, and so on. That's the story of how the torture program ended. But we haven't written the history of America coming to terms with that history. You know, in some ways, this is something that we have not even started. And I just hope that my book will be one small contribution to reorienting um, people's perceptions of the United States in the first two decades of the 21st century. Lisa Hajar is a professor of sociology at the University of California, Santa Barbara. Her forthcoming book is titled The War in Court, the inside story of the fight against torture in the war on terror. You've been listening to U.S. Anti-Torture History of the 21st Century on Making Contact. The Making Contact team is Jessica Partnow, Salima Hamarani, Anita Johnson, Sabine Blazin, and I'm Monica Lopez. Thanks for listening to Making Contact.